Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye, and Mayu Thava cannot be here with us today. Two weeks in a row, Mayu, you're completely slacking. Let's let's pick it up. Let's give Mayu some words of encouragement to jump back on the podcast because it's getting lonely to do it myself. No, I'm joking. He'll be back next week. Anyways, we're going to keep this preamble short and sweet. What have I been up to the last few weeks? Well, I have purchased a three-unit in Sudbury negotiated vacant possession. It was listed on the market for a while and was able to eventually negotiate vacancy. And I've already raised capital from it from one of my previous capital partners who will be doing their fourth project with me this year. Also ended up picking up a five unit in Windsor at uh, about 120, 125K a unit. It was at a 6.5% cap rate on entrance, on, on purchase. Um, So a pretty hot deal there. Two units are vacant and going to do cash for keys on the other three units. Was able to negotiate with the seller that I would need permission to do cash for keys prior to closing. So ideally, if all goes well, those units will also be vacant upon closing and I can get started on the work right away. And then lastly, had an offer accepted on a three unit in Windsor off market as well. Maybe doing that one myself, maybe doing it with a family member. Haven't completely decided what I'm going to do just yet. Either way, there are opportunities out there at the moment, and I foresee a lot more opportunities in the next year. You got to hunt for them. I'm particularly looking for stale listings on the market right now and trying to negotiate with realtors and seeing how uh, things shake out. But um, oh, one last thing, I also have a four unit under contract in North Bay. Uh, That one's going through a due diligence clause today, so we'll see how that pans out. If you guys have capital, important to stay liquid and take a look at the opportunities that are going to be coming out soon. If you guys are looking on investing on the passive side, I'm going to be picking up things quite aggressively because I think that this is going to be quite a large wealth transfer over the next few months. So I'm actively putting out offers, negotiating and trying to find good deals. So you can feel free to hit me up on Instagram at austinye6. Speaking of Instagram, I put a post on my stories a few days back talking about buying something at a 6.5 cap and also exiting at a 6 cap. And people were not too sure what exactly I meant by that. So I'm going to explain it here. And what better way to explain it than with the real life example, or I guess not a real life, but an example. So basically, an entry cap rate is what the cap rate you're getting the property at upon purchase price. So obviously, when you're buying a multifamily property, it's already renting for a certain amount of money because the units are already tenanted, and it's already incurring a certain amount of expenses. So you can easily calculate what the cap rate is by taking your net operating income and then dividing it by your purchase price. And that gives you the cap rate that you're buying the property at. Now, prior when the market was hot, a lot of people were buying cap rates at 2 or 3%. And on appraisal, so let's say they kick all of the tenants out, they renovate the units, and it's in pristine condition. Upon appraisal, the appraiser might appraise it at a 4 or 5 cap based on the new financials, right? So in other words, people are overpaying upon purchase in order to take advantage of the potential of the property because they know that it's severely under-marketed right now, which is why they're buying out a two cap. And once they turn around all the units, they'll be able to make some money on it, right? However, the risk with that strategy is, is that if you're buying out a two cap, 
an appraising at a five cap or year or two years from now, you basically have to turn over a certain amount of units to be able to break even because it's going to appraise at a five cap, right? And you're and you bought it at two cap. So you have to turn over a certain amount of units to get it to that five cap point. And that point, you're going to be breaking even. And then once you turn over more units above that five cap point, that's when you start making a spread on your money, right? Because it's going to appraise at a five cap um, when you go and refinance it. So in other words, you're starting off at a two cap. It's going to appraise at a five cap. So you already overpaid and you got to turn around units aggressively in order to make money. So in the current market condition, you can actually negotiate on current financials of the property and offer purchase price based on that. So your entry cap will be able to match your exit cap. And entry cap is basically, again, the cap rate you're buying the property at. So for example, if a property's net operating income is $10,000 a year, and I know that like in, in two or three years, the property is going to appraise at a five cap. Like when I refinance the property, appraisers are going to appraise it at a five cap. When I buy that property, even though it's under market rent, even though the net operating income is only $10,000 in today's market, I'm still going to only offer a five cap because I know that I'm going to be able to reappraise at a five cap. So when I enter the property, I don't want to overpay for it. I want to pay for what it's worth, which is five caps. So 10,000 divided by 5% is $200,000. So I'm going to offer this seller $200,000 for the property based on the income and expenses that it is incurring today. So for every unit I turn over, let's say there's a 50% upside in rent, for every unit I'm turning over, I'm basically keeping 100% of that profit, right? Because I entered the property with the five cap and I know that when the appraiser goes and reappraises that property, they're going to use the five cap as well. So every dollar I am for every dollar I'm basically adding in in rent. I'm uh, I'm adding. Sorry, I'm just writing the math right now. I'm adding twenty dollars in value in the property. So for every dollar I increase the rent, I'm adding twenty dollars in the value of the property, and I get to keep a hundred percent of that profit. Because again, I never paid on potential and acquisition. Super important concept. Um, that's exactly how I'm running numbers right now. My entry cap is going to be equivalent to my exit cap. So the cap rate that I'm purchasing the property is going to be equivalent to when the appraiser goes in and appraises the property in a year from now, what they're going to use based on the financials then and and using that exact same cap rate on entry. So therefore, I keep 100% of the profits at all times. Anyway, speaking of cap rates, we're going to jump into today's podcast episode where we're going to be speaking with Mike Buer, a multifamily investor. He's been investing in real estate over the past 15 years. He actually started off working the corporate grind, climbing quite high in the corporate ladder, then transitioning into buying multifamily properties, which is all about cap rates. It's going to be an amazing episode today. We're going to talk about how Mike was able to scale his portfolio, um, how he was able to quit his full-time job at, at such a high level to transition into real estate. This is a super inspirational episode. You guys did not want to miss this one out, especially since we get into some uh, relevant marketing conditions today on how he's uh, running his numbers and, and scaling his portfolio in the current market. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest and multifamily expert, Mr. Mike Beer. Mike, how's everything going? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Excited to be here. And then I know you got a ton of questions. And so this is going to be a good conversation. For sure, Mike. No, we're happy to have you on. You're definitely a, a very successful investor. First time meeting you, but uh, there's quite a bit about you online and on your website. So for anyone that doesn't know who you are, 
why don't you give everyone kind of a quick rundown of who you are, how you got started in real estate and what you're up to today. Yeah, so I'm a multifamily investor. My family immigrated from Poland when I was 10 years old. And I got a cool story about that. If you want to hear that later. That's right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. I can tell you. So, so essentially at the time when I was a kid living in Poland, it was still communist. So people couldn't really leave the country. So my parents were trying to get passports for a while to try to leave. My dad was a chief engineer on a cargo ship. So he would be one of the only few that could leave the country. So he would bring in like a bag of stuff each time he came back. And it was these products that you couldn't get within Poland, like from the Western countries, like coffee, like these, these kind of things. Mm. So I see like, uh, you know, my mom applying for passports, we couldn't get them. And she brings like a kilogram or two kilograms of coffee, gives it to the lady. She looks at it takes it, puts in a bag. Okay, your passports will be ready. <laughs> <So> <laughs> she bribed the officials to give us passports with coffee. Just a little bit of coffee. <laughs> yeah, must be really good coffee. Yeah, which was a big deal. And then, yeah, my parents, uh, we went on vacation, apparently to, uh, we're going to Norway. And then halfway through, my parents said, we're actually never coming back. We're going to Norway to live there. And then I didn't know what to say, but don't say anything at the border. Okay. <laughs> because we're just going on vacation. So my sister at the time, she was 16 years old. She started crying because her boyfriend was at home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then we landed in Norway and lived there for a little while where, uh, you know, as a kid learn uh, to speak Norwegian fluently. And uh, I still remember just two words now. But yeah, they didn't let us stay. So basically, my family applied to Australia and then Canada, where we got both. And my dad knew one university friend in Canada. So just because of that friend, I ended up living in Canada for the rest of my life. Wow, <laughs> so that's that a great story. <laughs> How'd you evolve from there to being who you are today? Because my parents came with a few actually cardboard boxes, not even suitcases. So I definitely have the appreciation for the opportunity, right? Because they didn't have to come here. They were okay doing well. So it's more for my sister and I. But yeah, I started working in the corporate world, kind of being a global executive. But then I thought, you know what? This is not for me. Like I saw one moment, one day, my dad was working for like a drafting company. He came home and they went on vacation went to work and then he was let go. So right away, he was 55 at the time. So for me, having that retirement plan and then that kind of savings for the future was super important. So that's what kind of triggered me to, to get into real estate. Like that was pretty intense. And then plus, you know, I mean, I still remember when we came to Canada, my dad was delivering uh, pizza pizza bringing it home. So to this day, I don't like pizza, pizza. I will not eat it. <laughs> that's a long lasting, long lasting memory. So that's what got me into real estate. Another moment is my wife's friend. We met with him and he said, Oh, you know what? I invest in real estate and I have 46 tenants. And I thought 46 tenants, I want to have 46 tenants. Let's go. Like, how do we do this? And he mm -hmm. was a realtor. So we got into investing. He showed me like a triplex, which was a fourplex, which was illegal. And I just bought it like right away. I bought, <laughs> I bought that property in Hamilton. So advice, don't buy the first property you see. But at the same time, it was cool, like a cool experience to, to just do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Even for myself, when I got started, same mistake, bought the first property I saw. It turned out well, but it was definitely a total disaster. I probably could have got a better property, but it got my foot in the door, right? Taking action. Just to get a bit more better idea on your story. So it seems like you had a mix of realizing that you needed other sources of income, but also meeting the right people to kind of light that fire under you to get started in real estate. Being a global executive, obviously, I assume that you had some capital saved up. So how were the first couple of deals? Were they like buying holes or did you go in with the purpose of like buying fixer uppers and then renovating it from there? So I made the huge mistake of actually paying off my mortgage. So I waited way too long and then I wanted to be mortgage free, which uh, I wouldn't recommend. I mean, use leverage and use it as quickly as possible. So that's, a, that's I would say, a regret I have. But then I bought that triplex. And at the same time, a few years ago, I didn't coordinate this. I bought a couple pre-construction condos and it just happened that all of it closed within two months. So I was like stressed out like crazy with these three properties. And especially since that fourplex ended up being a only a legal triplex. When was this? Around like what year of time? I would say, so I started investing about 15 years ago. So maybe like 14 years ago or so. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's been a little while. That four unit, did you find out it was illegal because the city told you or did you just somehow figure it out on your own? Like, how did you figure that it was a non-conforming unit? The city said it was a grandfathered three unit and I still thought I could run it as a four unit, which in Hamilton is tough. That's, <laughs> that's where a, a lot of people make the mistake early on, right? We just don't know what we're looking for. We don't understand the differences between legal, non-conforming, grandfather. And like, what is all this stuff, right? But did you keep going at the residential stuff? Like, what was your journey from there? Because you you had the pre-cons that you closed, which I'm assuming are like single family-ish type like properties, right? And then you have all of a sudden a fourplex, right? How did you continue to go from there? I guess I'm curious, journey to jumping into multifamily, like larger multifamily. You know what? From then on, I bought some student properties as well in, okay. uh, in Hamilton and then started expanding more to the seven and eight unit type of properties in London and in Hamilton as well. So. So bought those and then I reached that limit where I couldn't buy anymore with my money. But integrity is huge for me. So I, I was really reluctant on taking other people's money. I mean, everybody makes it exciting, but I would rather lose my money 10 times over than somebody else's money. So that was tough to get into, I guess, uh, start investing with investors, right? But also another big lesson learned I didn't want to invest in mentors and courses because I thought I could outsmart the system and just learn the stuff on my own off the internet, off YouTube, or whatever. But around that time, I got a mentor from uh, that has a large REIT and then started investing in courses and then real estate clubs and, and, and such. And then that started to kind of skyrocket. So I bought like these 13, 17 unit type of buildings with investors. So all the while, while you were doing the seven and eight units in London, you were just doing that solo on your own. Yeah, exactly. Okay. This sounds like it was full-time, by the way, or were you still like juggling the job and doing this? You know what? I was juggling the job until one point where I'm sitting there. I remember in downtown Toronto, looking outside of my office, 20th floor view of the union station. And then my boss comes to me. Okay, it's 11 o'clock. You got to create a presentation. You got to run across the street and present it for 12 o'clock. I was sitting wow. here peacefully. <laughs> this is an hour from now. How am I going to get this done? 
I thought, this is it. Like, I'm done with this, right? So then I got more of a, into a part-time job. And then I've been full-time real estate investor for a little while now. But I would say that transition into full-time and using other people's money, I really underestimated how difficult it would be. And then not just technically, like you I mean, in terms of how to do it. It's more about emotionally just moving into that direction and then being responsible for other people's cash and then meeting expectations. And then also, I mean, there's that sales component to it, right? Which I was never a natural sales guy. I'm kind of more no-nonsense kind of guy. So I'm curious exactly about that because you had quite a bit of experience just leveraging your own capital. I'm sure at that time, like prices were a little bit cheaper and you, your dollar can go further, especially if you had a mortgage paid off and you were in a high income earning role, right? But I'd almost argue now you're jumping into the bigger multifamily, which needs a lot more capital. And you're now stuck in a situation where you have to raise that capital. You probably weren't able to take them down yourself using your own capital. How did you all of a sudden kind of hit that switch and just start raising capital? What was that process like? What did you do to kind of get there? You know what? I would say it's just, uh, I think, the confidence that I could replicate what I've done for myself. And then I thought, you know what? If I don't meet expectations of the investors, I could always cover it. Like I could pay myself nothing for this deal and then just pay that out for investors. And then one of my mentors really kind of, I think, walked me through some of the not the specifics, but more of like how to build your brand so that you can actually attract investors and then such to invest in these multifamily. But really, it comes down to a leap, right? There's a moment where all of a sudden someone says, you know what, you told me you're looking for this multifamily property. So here you go, right? And then you hear about multifamily. If you tell somebody you want to buy it and you don't close on it, it's not going to look great. So I was in a situation where I had to buy it. And I kind of learned from a younger age that taking leaps is what I'm good at, right? Maybe sometimes a little bit impulsive. I'll tell you another really quick story. When I was a kid, I was six years old. We were at this like an Olympic sized swimming pool. I only knew how to float. I didn't know how to swim. And we were trying to pass this test for, for swimming. My sister was there. She was 12. And then the lifeguard said, okay, jump. My sister didn't jump, even though she knew how to swim. I jumped in. <laughs> and also I see, I'm, I'm like, I see the bubbles. I'm sinking, right? I'm sinking. And then this hand reaches out and just pulls me out of the water. So the lifeguard started yelling at my mother, like, this kid doesn't know how to swim. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Why is he jumping into this water? Right? <laughs> But I learned a lot about kind of myself and I'll tell the listeners to hear is about embracing something that doesn't stand out with you in terms of your personality, whether that's being impulsive now, taking that and then marrying it with a ton of due diligence. That means I can jump on opportunities and then calculate them and then go, right? So yes, jumped on the opportunity and then just you know, the very first one with investors, I didn't have enough cash to cover it because it was a larger building. So I just started reaching out to everybody and anybody. And there's a lot of fear, right? You're sometimes you don't want to. And I just said, you know what, this is do or die time. I don't care if I bear it. I don't care what happens. I'm going to reach out to everybody that I possibly know. Right. And before having this deal, I could never see myself doing it. So it's like it's one phone call, one reach out at a time. 
but it somehow it like it barely scraped by and then i got just enough money and i had a little bit of my own and then we closed on a deal and then all of a sudden it's like wow i can do this right mm -hmm. yeah so i guess it's much different now at least for people like mayu and i who are new investors what we try to do is we brand and try to have people reach out to us, which is much easier given how big social media has gotten recently. But in your situation, I'm curious. So did you plant any seeds before giving these people a call? Did they know what you were up to? Because it sounded like you weren't really like significantly branding at that point. You just started picking up the phones and I guess like calling everyone on your list. Like how was that process like? How are the phone calls and conversations like? like and what did you... How did you really sell them on the fact that the investment made sense? I sometimes think that people try to get everything perfect before they execute. And I just thought that, you know what? I don't need to have this big brand yet, right? To buy this building. Let me just figure this out on the go. So yes, I had a little bit of social media, but really I don't think any first time investor that's investing with investors has this kind of giant brand because they don't have track record, right? So yes, you can attract investors, tell stories, but then what do you got, right? Um, oh yeah, I have a few of my own kind of properties. So even now it's still applicable. You can kind of just have to power through it, build the brand on the go, kind of do that opportunity, but it's really life-changing for your confidence if you actually get it done because it's so out of reach. Yeah. And I do think a lot of investors ultimately, like to a certain extent, we're all taking leaps and it's kind of like the more uncertainty you can handle, the further you can go. I think it's a Tony Robbins quote where it's like the direct quality of your life is tied to the amount of uncertainty or something that you can handle. Right. And so the more of that yeah. you handle, the more risk you can take and the more you can continue to kind of level up. But that being said, so the first one you had your own kind of capital and I'm assuming it was kind of within the Ontario region. How did you continue to scale after that? But also like part of the challenge here is how do you go about finding people with money? Like, would you attribute it to your time in a high position corporate job or like, is it just, you know, family and friends or how did you like on the early days continue to scale out and raise more capital? You know what? I found that most people that I actually worked with that I thought had money, they actually drive nice cars, but they don't have money. So when you start talking about money and then I talked to a few friends, which didn't look like they really had a lot. Mm -hmm. And then there were some of my biggest investors and, you know, mm -hmm. frugal family kind of driving a Mazda, Mazda. And then the guy was one of my biggest investors. Right. So I talked to friends, family, coworkers, but I've always been talking about real estate to everybody. And they, they kind of saw the excitement. Some people say they do it unintentionally. I'm just going to tell you, I intentionally talked about real estate the whole time with everybody you know, being aware if they wanted to chat about it, as soon as they kind of start asking questions, okay, I'm going to tell you about uh, yeah. like, this is what I've done and then such. But yeah, mm -hmm. you know what? Coworkers, I would say friends of the family, I raised quite a bit from that immediate circle. Mm -hmm. So where are you right now, portfolio wise? I see on your website, you have a couple of multis that you're closing on, a couple quite that a are working on being funding. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few and in prime areas too. So like, where's your portfolio at right now? To about 10 buildings and right now uh, actually in the process of purchasing a kitchener property so this one is 16 units and what i love about it it's like 1.1 kilometers away from the google office right walking distance 
which is amazing to attract that tenant, right? And right by the GO station, like another kilometer from there and then close to the kitchen or downtown. So yeah, in the middle of acquiring that property, I would say it's so refreshing to have this crisis right now because last year it was so tough to find multifamily deals. Mm -hmm. Every seller was, uh, I think, they thought they owned the world, right? Because they Mm -hmm. have one or two buildings. But now with this kind of commotion around recession possibly coming or interest rates, a lot has changed significantly. So I think we have about like a 12-month time window where I know my company, we're like in crazy acquiring mode because this is definitely the time for multifamily in Ontario specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So let's talk about multifamily in Ontario because I think everyone wants it. I think everyone kind of understands the game there. I, I do think the government is to a certain extent pushing investors towards owning larger buildings with the CMHC programs and stuff like that, that they have rolling out, right? The result is you have, like you said, over the last one or two years, maybe maybe it was the same before and I just never looked into it before, but an influx of buyers that are coming in, sellers that want above the current market value that's supported by the net income. And I guess for anyone that doesn't know, multifamily is really valued based on the net income and a cap rate, which is very similar to a multiplier, right? So sellers want more than what it's actually worth in the current market. So how were you getting around that? Was it just aggressive deal hunting? How did you go about financing a lot of these properties? Was it a lot of equity raising versus like commercial financing? How did you go about taking down some of these bigger deals? So I would say Ontario is tough, right? Because you will never find a multifamily property that cash flows ever, right? Because you're buying from a sophisticated investor. Even if he's 75 years old and he has a 20 unit building, he's still sophisticated to a point. So you need to put down, first of all, on they're considered commercial. So you need to put down in traditional mortgage about 35%, which is quite a bit. Now you can go to not the first like uh, tier lenders, which are the banks. Second tier would be the credit unions. So at the very beginning when purchasing the property, I sometimes go to the, like the third tier lenders, right? Which would be like formal groups of investors or funds, uh, like mortgage funds too. They lend on not just debt service coverage ratio, which basically means for listeners, it's your ratio between your income expense and then, and then how your debt falls in there. But long story short, the numbers have to make sense. So if your plan is just to hold the property, it's tough to get it financed. But like many investors, we really raise the rents in those buildings. So turnover units, I'll give you an example on on our last building in Kitchener, the average rent is about a thousand and newly renovated units are getting $2,000, right? So double, which is huge for the net operating income. So with these kind of tertiary lenders, you need to have a bit of a track record and show them a business plan. It's less about what your job and salary and income is. They want to see, have you done this before? And can you execute on this plan? Do you have the team? And then last, do you have the net worth? Unfortunately, you need a certain net worth to be able to buy these kind of buildings. I know mm-hmm. I said a lot there, but it's not as simple as just coming up with a down payment. That's what I'm saying. And I think that makes a lot of sense. The big thing in current market is, is that cap rates are obviously quite low. And as you were mentioning, 
a lot of the times you can't even go 35% because the debt coverage doesn't check out on acquisition, right? So like credit unions are almost never an option or if they are, it's like 40 or 50% loan to value if that with like low rents. I'm curious, obviously with multifamilies in general in Ontario, a lot of the upside comes with attrition, turnover attendance, right? Like what are you sort of underwriting are you doing cash for keys? Is there any strategies that you're using to increase attrition or are you just waiting for natural turnaround? So I would say a combination of these strategies. I don't think there's ever a silver bullet for turning over tenants. I mean, if you kind of go through it a lot in Ontario, I think the benefits come, right? You have to know the tenant laws extremely well and then have a good team around it because doing the wrong thing, getting a tenant out incorrectly, means you'll renovate a unit and they'll come back and then they'll pay you the same rate uh, rent as they did before. So, right. If you, (laughs) if you, (laughs) which is, is, yeah, exactly. So we try to be kind of conscious about the tenant, but at the same time, see how we can move the plan along. So you mentioned in natural attrition, people move because of jobs, because of kids, divorce, whatever, something happens. It's a multifamily building. There's a chance that 20% of the tenants will turn over, right? Every Naturally, year? 10 to 20%. Every right? year? Like that's your Every year, every okay. year. It depends on the building too. Like if you go to a building and you see mainly older folks that have been there for 20 years, that's not going to have a high attrition. But if you see a building with uh, maybe younger kind of IT folks that are working there or or even students, then that means the attrition will be high. So that's one kind of strategy, Mm -hmm. right? Second strategy is we have buildings just outside of the main cities where we can give them a slightly nicer unit for roughly like just a bit of an increase in rent. So right now, these tenants are living in, you know, the big buildings internally inside, they haven't been maintained as well. Like if a kitchen cabinet breaks, the old owner would leave it, right? Right. If something leaks, they leave a hole in the ceiling where they could move to a nicer place for slightly increase, right? Because they could be frustrated as well. And then the third one is cash for keys. That one definitely. And then I call it check for keys, right? Because there's got to be traceability there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. That ties into my question, which is when you're underwriting these deals and when you're presenting it to a, a private lender or, or whatever kind of financing options you guys are going down, you probably have a forecast, right? So with that forecast, how do you go about, you know, determining how many, like, you can't say with certainty that I'm going to turn around 50% of this building, right? So how do you go about building those assumptions for your forecast, which is relevant for when you're pitching your potential partners as well for equity financing, right? Because they got to know when we would get our money back and so on, right? So how do you go about building those assumptions? So I'm extra conservative, right? So always my goal is preserve capital as number one and then grow capital. So I give myself roughly, depends on the building, maybe three to five years to turn that building around. So that's plenty of time. It's not an aggressive approach where we do it like in a year. The benefit is that if you try to do it too quickly and then you'd be too forceful, it's going to tarnish your brand because there is going to be media. There is going to be a lot of kind of noise and fuss. But if you try to do it nicely and then kind of follow through your plan over a long period of time, it will do two things for you. One is, yes, you'll make slightly less money, but then it's more of a sustainable business. And then number two, it will give investors more confidence. 
So for example, if we're doing one or two units at a time and then not vacating the entire building, then they can see kind of, oh, you know what? You just renovated one unit. And then there's from a thousand, we went to 2000, right? Right. So they know we're kind of doing this slowly and then we're not putting their money at tremendous risk. Gotcha. Now, it's interesting seeing the way that you've scaled up the multifamily space. Have you ever thought about going, I guess, like outside of the province or you kind of decided to stay within Ontario? Is there any reason for that? You know what? All the time. I Grass is greener on the other side. People are investing in Florida. I would love to invest there. People are investing in storage units, Alberta and such. But I'm more of a... I like to kind of stay the course. Like I'm pretty disciplined, I would say. Mm-hmm. And like I was thinking of going investing in Alberta two years ago, last year and then such. But I'm glad that I stayed in Ontario because I would say for some investors say, you know what, I could invest anywhere. I can invest in New Brunswick. I can invest here. But really, I'll bet the investor that just starts and takes a plane trip to New Brunswick, he doesn't understand the market like if you invest here for years, like I went to university in Kitchener, Waterloo, right? University of Waterloo. So I know the area and then you can become more competitive and talk to the investors with more confidence around how you know the city, you know, where the LRT is, right? You know, where the big plazas are, you know, where the condo developments are. And that gives you a little bit of insight if this area is going to stay as is, or if it's going to move a little bit, right? So I would say all the time I'm thinking about doing something different, but then I say, you know what, come back, let's go. This is what we're doing. So for right now it's uh, Hamilton, London, and Kitchener. And then I may expand it to another city. Mm-hmm. Say that's mm-hmm. as adventurous as it gets. Gotcha. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, I usually ask this question, but I guess my y'all ask it is, is um, a lot of times with multifamily properties, especially in the current market, it's hard to be very picky location wise. Well, you know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> because there's only a limited amount of inventory, especially in those markets that you mentioned where it's very competitive. So have you been curious even just looking out in different cities or how are you acquiring these multi-properties in just those two or three cities that you named? Because one, again, you're competing with a bunch of people. Two, a lot of the times there's multiple people having eyes on that apartment as well. So you know what, each time I buy a building or I see a building, I try to get to know the owner of the building. I actually have a list of owners. I call on a, like a periodic basis, right? I say, Hey, Jim, how is it going? Are you thinking of selling this year? And he goes, nah, but maybe next year, call me back. Right? (laughs) So that's one, it's like a, you know, old school venue of doing it. Number two. So there's a ton of real estate agents. But so few of them actually really understand and then have the connections in multifamily. So they'll bring you in before deals are public quite a bit as well. So that's another way to acquire these properties. And then from agents I've been to see a property, I always ask them, hey, is anything coming up? And if you can demonstrate that you're ready to buy, they'll often give you stuff before it goes on the market. So I guess... In essence, knowing the owners and then also looking for things before they happen, before they come on the market, and then not underestimating the power of having really knowledgeable and connected real estate agents, because so few of them are. So if you ever ask an agent, where do you uh, practice, right? Oh, everywhere. Automatic website. Yeah. Thank you. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Dr. Wall, <laughs> right? master of none, right? Yeah. Right. 
you know, you've done uh, quite a few multifamily transactions. Obviously, the last like one or two years, we've had significant cap rate compression just, you know, with interest rates going down and the cap rates that people need to derive are a lot lower to even make the properties cash flow, right? So when you're looking at underwriting these deals, we're kind of in an unforeseen environment where I think like, I think it was one year ago, I was getting like 3.5 on one of my multis on in New Brunswick. And then now I'm getting, I locked in in like May or June, like almost five. And next year we're probably looking north of five, right? So how are you underwriting these deals? What kind of assumptions do you make on cap rates? Have you seen cap rates go up in your local market, right? Yeah, just tell us a little bit about the multifamily like landscape right now. So New Brunswick, you mentioned, is great. Like I know that it's so much easier to get stuff cash flowing. I like Ontario because it's a very diverse economy. Like you get not only oil, like you don't just get one industry here. I've seen cap rates maybe... I was actually talking to an appraiser the other day. He was talking about cap rates going up a little bit. But at the same time, remember that how much rents have gone up too, right? True, yeah. When you look at cap rates, it's not... Well, cap rates is one thing, right? You're looking at the interest rates. You're looking at cap rates. I know last year, when I mentioned it was really tough, some sellers wanted like a two point something cap rate for their building, right? Which is very difficult to elevate the income. But if I can buy a building that has a tremendous amount of opportunity for rental growth, and I mean almost every unit, Mm-hmm. I can buy it at like a low three cap rate, like a three cap, and then raise it to above like a 6.5, right? At times. Okay. So it depends on the deal. When you refinance, you refinance at a 6.5 cap rate, or you're saying based on the purchase price that you bought it at, it would be a 6.5 cap rate? Based on the purchase price before refinancing. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as the other units are turned around. Yeah, exactly. With the number of transactions you've done, especially in this large space, I'm curious what some of the learning lessons were, mistakes, whatever it was, things that didn't go according to plan, right? Just so that newer investors, like when we're all kind of going down similar kind of like trains of thoughts and like levels of like scaling up, right? Like things to look out for. I made so many mistakes uh, along the way. But one of the key things I think for me was uh, why am I doing this, right? Is it ego versus is it something I really enjoy and then love to do? Because I think some people look at it, you know what, I want this big building so I can tell people about it, right? right? But it is really hard and it's going to wear you out if you're not in it truly because you love it, right? And then second thing is there is money to be made in every kind of category of real estate. It doesn't have to be multifamily. Multifamily is great, but it's not the only one. Like you can retire off, I don't know, five single family properties, right? That have been held for a long period of time. Another thing I would say is don't pay off your mortgage like I did and then get a mentor. I know these are kind of standard things, but for me, it's 80% mindset. This is what we're doing here. And then 20% mechanics and then getting a mentor that's been there and done it not just like a coach. I think that's fairly key. And then just understanding when to take the leap, right? Calculate if the numbers make sense, you're almost ready. You'll never be ready. Like even this building, I wasn't ready to purchase it because I didn't even have any investors lined up. But then opportunity came that ran the numbers. It's great. I think I have some money. I can get some people and then boom, it's a deal. And it's going to be done end of the month. Get to a point where you kind of semi-trust yourself and then just go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
A question I have on my end is, is that with multifamily buildings, is there any particular one that you're looking for? Like, are you looking for mixed use conversions, purpose built, any way to add additional units or like, just like, yeah, again, like purpose built, low rent and kind of boosted up from there. Like what excites you about a multifamily building when you see one and what do you stray away from when you see a particular multifamily? It's like, oh, I don't touch this investment property because of A, B, C reasons. So we buy very specific types of buildings. So we never buy like wooden frame buildings, buy buildings from built in the mid 1960s to 1980s. And generally these are like concrete buildings with brick. I mean, this building, when I see down to the, like the main areas, they have these polished concrete floors. I mean, I love those because they stand the test of time. The one thing for new investors is when realtors, a lot of the time they talk about deals, they talk about a price per door. I would really evaluate that and then be extra cautious around when you're looking at price per door, because you could be looking at a 20 unit building, but with bachelor units. And then how different would it be if that building has a mix of two and three bedroom units? Additions are amazing, but they're extremely expensive. But I find that strategies like maximizing the unit space, even splitting units, right? Those are good ones. And then they can be done by uh, without putting in a tremendous amount of effort or cash. So I look for buildings that are in average areas. I never look at stressed properties. Even though I think we could make a lot more money on distressed properties, but then there's a lot more uncertainty, right? Like, do you want to sleep at night, right? If you don't, sure, go for it, right? But if I buy, I know if I buy in an average area that's upcoming, that's kind of close to kind of key things like LRT and I mentioned like businesses and Google Office and, and such, that building will do pretty well. And then kind of know your rents as well, right? So know what the uplift is. I do at times buy like a commercial and then residential mix when there are storefronts at the bottom. But then again, that has to be in a great location where there's a lot of traffic, right? And you look at the tenant type in there. If there's a used clothing store, they can wrap up and not pay rent next month, right? But if there's a like a walk-in clinic or something, they're going to be around for a while. So these are kind of... I know this a lot, but... You got to kind of look at everything so it makes sense to you in the building. Yeah. And so I'm wondering when you're taking these buildings down, especially the type of assets that you're taking down, because they're relatively not stable, but like they're not like completely run down properties. And I'm assuming you're doing like a GPLP model where there's a general partner and you've got limited partner investors, right? So when you're doing that model, are you solely acting as a GP or do you have other partners that are kind of sharing the workload that goes into being a GP? So you know what? My company is the GP. At times, I have uh, raising capital partners that also are included in that GP model. But no, you know what? I actually get a lot of people asking, hey, can I partner with you? Mm -hmm. Right? Then I ask, well, what can you offer? Well, not much. I just want to learn. Right? Right. We only have so much time. Right? I mean, I'll help people. No problem. Right. But in terms of, you know, going into a deal and then spending five years with that person or three years, that's uh, that's a lot to ask for. Yeah, that's fair. So I guess you stayed away. So your company kind of manages um, in the majority of your deals, like you guys kind of take the lion's share of the GP and the lion's share of responsibilities. How have you structured your company to be able to handle that? And the reason I'm asking this is real estate cash flows, especially on the buy a lot of the time, very negligible, maybe a little bit. Right. 
Um, a lot of the times we're trying to carry a deficit and you're putting money into the projects while you turn it over until you get it stabilized, right? So is Mike Beer Investments primarily yourself or do you have individuals on payroll that you're able to kind of help share the workload with? And then is there kind of a fee that gets charged to the LPs or something like that? So what we do is I have another partner and then we have teams on the ground in each of the cities. Gotcha. Those teams, we basically provide a lot of that at cost. Okay. We we do take an asset management fee overall, and we have one back office where also that's built into the model. So essentially, I would say the investor is getting economies of scale. But you know what? For people here, if they were to buy a building, get a property manager, you would just pass that on as at cost to the investor. Right. Yeah. Then we have one kind of uh, holding company that owns pieces of each of the buildings that we have. Right. So, Mike, no, really appreciate all the insight that you've been able to share with us regarding the business. I think it's uh, insightful for a lot of newer and medium term investors that are looking ahead and trying to plot this great escape. Right. And kind of talking a little bit about, you know, being a full time real estate investor and the dream and the hype behind that. I think it's gotten a lot of like mainstream attention recently especially with COVID and the unemployment uncertainty and all that kind of stuff that happened back then in 2020. I'm just curious, like that transition to being a full-time real estate investor and for our guests that are aspiring to do the same, any insights that you can share related to your experience there? You know what? Don't quit your day job, right? <laughs> because, because you don't want to be stuck in a situation where you can't feed your family. But really having that employment, especially with smaller properties, smaller multifamily properties helps. Don't get too focused around the structure and such. I mean, if you're investing with a friend or with a couple friends, all you need to really is open up a corporation, right? And then have that building in a corporation and let the lawyer figure out the shares or whatever. But don't get too absorbed into because there's so many sophisticated structures. And then, you know what? Don't go too big, too fast. And then just, I would say... Um, yeah, start a little smaller and then build your way up. Like I'm not the guy that bought thousand units the first year. I know some people do that, but definitely not me. Right. So I uh, took the kind of more more cautious way. So, so that's what I would say. Don't overcomplicate it. Get a mentor and take the leap. Right. That's important. Nice. I love it. Uh, even just looking at your website, you can see literally the, the kind of the progression that you had. I think it was four, seven, eight, 12, 13, 18 or something like that. With regards to the number of units and the, and the progress of the others. So that's great. So at this point in the podcast, we should ask our guests two questions. The first is, how do you see your business evolving over the next five years from here? I think we're going to... My goal in five years is to buy portfolios of properties and then put them in the fund. So, so really to adopt the fund model. I don't know if we're going to continue to invest in Ontario. That we'll see. But it's more about having like a bigger vehicle to take in more funds and then to buy more properties. Gotcha. Were you from like a finance background before? Or is this going to be completely new to you? You know what? I studied math and computer science at university. So I get the math aspect of it, but definitely I'm not from a finance background. Cool, man. Cool. And then the second question we'd like to ask is for newer and intermediate investors in today's market, what's the main risk or advice that you'd like to share with people? The biggest risk is just sitting on your hands and not doing anything. I would say there is an opportunity lost if you don't do anything. That's, I would say, the biggest risk of just taking too much time, reading too much, watching YouTube too much, and then just kind of absorbing information for years and years and then not doing it. I would say if 
just pick a very easy strategy, buy and hold and then buy something, hold it and then learn, learn why you do it. I mean, when I entered London, I didn't really have motivation to learn the city. So I just bought a property there. And then all of a sudden things were kind of working out. Yeah, exactly what you're saying. Jump in the deep end, like what you did when you're very little and then you're forced to figure things out. <laughs> Great advice there. This was a fantastic episode, Mike. Really appreciate all the golden nuggets you shared, especially with your years of real estate investing as well. And we really don't dive down into multifamily as much as we should in this podcast, but I definitely learned a ton. I'm sure Mayu did as well. If people want to connect with you, follow you on socials, or maybe even invest with you, how could they best get in touch? Uh, best way, just go to my website, mikebeer.ca slash invest. And then you can learn about, uh, you know what, either way, if you want to invest with us or not, you can at least learn about a deal, see how they work, see how the financials are done. So I think that's kind of important. Absolutely. And all of your information will be down in the show notes below. If you guys, the listeners enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, share with a friend, do whatever you can to support this podcast that helps bring great guests like Mike out to the podcast. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care all.